How many of you have heard the story, the Dr. Seuss story, Horton Hears a, Hu- Horton Hears a Who? I'm sure most of you have. Even if you haven't, or you have, you're probably not raising your hand. Um, how many of you, I, I always like to ask this question. How many of you would, um, are not raising your hand no matter what question I ask? Okay. Um, how many of you want a hundred dollars? We'll just, yeah. I'm sorry, I was going to give it out. But uh, no, I, in, in the story, if you, if you know the story, even if you don't, I'm going give to give you the, the nuts and bolts version of it. But the story centers around two main characters, uh, Horton, who is a, an elephant, and uh, he, he lives in the jungle like elephants do. And then the other main character is the mayor of a town called Whoville. Now, Whoville is a, an extremely small world. So small, in fact, that it's, in reality, it's this, this tiny speck located on the top of a small flower in the midst of this jungle that Horton lives in. And Horton, the elephant, discovers Whoville when he somehow hears the small speck talking to him. And after learning of this tiny speck's existence, Horton takes it upon himself to make sure that the, he's the protector of Whoville, the Whoville, the protector of this small speck, and that nothing ever happens to it. Now, in the meantime... The mayor of Whoville has, excuse me, has knowledge of Horton, this giant elephant in the sky, if you will, but he really can't see him because he's so big that it's just like he, he can't really see him. He can't picture him, and Whoville is so small. Now, the mayor can hear Horton through this tube on the top of his balcony where he lives, but the problem is that he is the only person in Whoville who can hear Horton, and so consequently, he's the only person who's clued into the larger reality of Horton and what's beyond Whoville. So as the story unfolds, the mayor tries to tell everyone in Whoville what's really going on and how their world of Whoville is in danger, and there's this giant elephant named Horton who's risked his life to protect Whoville and keep Whoville safe, and if you know, you can kind of see the ridiculousness that maybe you might be, you know, if you live in Whoville of what that story might, uh, might entail and, and how unbelievable it may be. And so nobody in Whoville believes the, the mayor of Whoville. And so they don't believe that Whoville is just this tiny speck. They don't even know, um, you know, what an elephant is. And so the Whoville residents respond to the mayor first with confusion, then they respond with mocking and laughter. And finally, the mayor of Whoville says, but I can prove to you that I'm telling you the truth because Horton's voice comes right out of this tube. And so Horton hears, or excuse me, the mayor speaks into the tube and Horton hears him. And and he tells Horton, he says, just say something so that everybody will know that you exist. And everybody's gathered in a town square. Everybody's listening, you know, just, and, and so he says, just let them know you're real. Let them know that you're there, and if you've seen the movie, you know at this point, Horton is kind of thinking through, and he's kind of this innocent kind of clumsy elephant, and he's thinking through, okay, what am I going to say now that I have everybody listening to me? Well, in the meantime, he's thinking about what he's going to say. This giant bird swoops in and basically takes the speck from Horton, okay? Whoville doesn't know this. Uh, the mayor doesn't know this. All he knows is that there's silence on the other end while all of Whoville waits to hear this voice coming out of the tube. And the mayor speaks again into the tube. Horton, we're waiting. Time to show everyone you exist. And by extension, that I'm not an idiot. And it's a funny scene in the show, but no voice comes out of the tube in that moment. And the city of Whoville erupts in laughter. 
And I tell you that story because I wonder how many Christians ever feel like that mayor when trying to tell people in our world about God and about what's really real and about what's true and what life is all about. And my guess is that we've all been there in one way, shape, or form. Even the Apostle Paul had those moments. For instance, I think about this story in Acts chapter 17 when he's in the city of Athens. And in Acts chapter 17, it says this, starting in verse 16. It says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked them, What is this rabbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Because they were always wondering about new teachings. They were always open to those things, but they're just confused. What in the world are you talking about? And they say this, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. Now, at this point, it seems as though Paul's message has been received a lot like the message of the mayor of Whoville to the Whovillians who are listening, and this just seems like a strange teaching. Paul is talking about Jesus. He's talking about the resurrection right in the middle of the city of Athens, but not everybody is buying into it. But notice what Paul does. He switches things up, and he approaches things from a different angle. And so picking up in verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have even said, we are his offspring. A couple of things stick out to me when it comes to Paul in this story and the links he goes to connect to these people in the city of Athens. For one, he's persistent. He doesn't give up in the face of that initial skepticism that they exhibit, but rather he breaks, he backs up and he tries another approach. But not only is he persistent, but he's also relevant. He even borrows a couple of well-known lines from their, their poets and their writers about the Greek god Zeus and uses them to talk about the one true God. Those two quotes from verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being, and we are his offspring. In essence, Paul is saying, hey, those are, those are some great lines. You've got some great thoughts, but really those lines are, are about this God over here. This God that you have uh, described as an unknown God. You've even got an altar to worship him. Let me tell you about him. And Paul takes one of the altars, an altar that they had built to this unknown God, their way of paying homage to a God that they were afraid they hadn't recognized yet. And, and so for extra insurance, 
They built an altar to this unknown God just in case they didn't cover him. They wanted to make sure they had all their bases covered. And so Paul recognizes and acknowledges this, this altar as an expression of their spirituality. And working from that altar, he builds a bridge pointing them to the God of the Bible and ultimately and eventually to the, his son, Jesus Christ. Now, most of our time, we've been in a series, by the way, called Faith and Doubt. Most, in our, most of our time in this series uh, so far, uh, and we're going to mix it up as we go throughout the rest of this series, so far in this series, we've really spent some time talking about doubt and how that relates to faith and talking about how that's a natural part of, of our lives and the, the lives that we live, that that, that is part of it. And, and so how do we walk in light of those doubts that we have? How do we walk in light of those uncertainties? And, and some common questions we've looked at the last couple of weeks associated with faith and doubt. But today, I want to switch gears just a little bit for this morning and, and next week as well as we'll get to. And I want to spend some time talking to us as Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian, it doesn't mean that's not applicable. I think it is just as applicable um, because you can take some of this. And as Christians, I hopefully give you some tools to, uh, to be able to discuss and point people, uh, as I'll just talk about in just a second, back to the one true God. But I want to talk to specifically us as Christians, or more specifically to us as missionaries, because that's what we are in this world. And so today I want to look at how we are missionaries and how we have been called to point people to an awareness of God in our world and to his son, Jesus Christ. And this isn't so much a, a how-to session as much as it is some suggestions for what you and I can work with in our world around us to testify to God and to point people to Jesus. In the same way that Paul uses that altar to an unknown God, and works with that to declare to them the one true God, what are some things that you and I can use and work with to point people to the one true God and to his son, Jesus? Now, there are, let me, let me just say this, this is not going to be an all-inclusive list, okay? Because there are so many things that you and I can use that point people back to Jesus, back to God, back to a creator, a divine creator, back to something bigger than what we see around us. But I'm, for the purposes of not spending you know, the entirety of this series doing this, I'm going to give you four. I think they are four of the major ones, or the top four. We're going to spend half of our time doing that, or all of our time doing half of it, two this week, and then we'll talk about two next week. So, two this week, two next week. So let's go ahead and get one uh, with the first one. The first one I, I think we can use to point people back to uh, the one true God and to his son Jesus Christ is how awesomely and wonderfully made we are. You are made awesomely and wonderfully, fearfully, as some translations say of this verse in Psalm chapter 139, verses 13 and 14. For you, this is what David says in Psalms about God. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully. And when you hear that word fearfully, don't think like God was scared to make you. But God, God there is an awe that we ought to experience when we think about God creating us as human beings. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Now, there are a bunch of examples that I could use that would point to this reality about our, our bodies. But just think about, let me give you one. Think about your muscles or what you would like for your muscles to be. But just think about your muscles and how your muscles are made. Much of our muscle tissue is, that makes up the muscles in our body <coughs> is made up of a protein called collagen. 
It's among the most pro, uh, common proteins in your body that makes up your muscles, your skin, your connective tissues that hold your body together. Listen to this expert ex- excerpt from uh, a book called The Short History of Nearly Everything. The writer says, No one really knows, but there may be as many as a million types of protein in the human body. Now, we know of tens of thousands of them, but there quite possibly could be millions. And each one is a little miracle. By all the laws of probability, proteins shouldn't exist. To make a protein, you need to assemble amino acids in a particular order in much the same way that you assemble letters in a particular order to spell a word. For example, to make collagen, that protein that makes up your muscles and connective tissue, you need to arrange 1,055 amino acids in precisely the right sequence. Okay? That seems a big number, but maybe not too much. The chances of a 1,055 sequence molecule like collagen spontaneously self-assembling in the right order are frankly nil. Those are his words, not mine. It's, not ju- it's just not going to happen. To grasp what a long shot its existence is, visualize a standard Las Vegas slot machine, but broadened greatly to about 90 feet, to be precise, to accommodate 1,055 spinning wheels instead of the usual three or four. And with 20 symbols on each wheel, one for each common amino acid. How long would you have to pull the handle before all 1,055 symbols came up in the right order? Even if you reduce the number of spinning wheels to 200, which is actually a more typical number of amino acids for a protein, the odds for just 200 coming up in a prescribed sequence are 1 in 10, followed by 260 zeros. That in itself is a larger number than all the atoms in the known universe. Yet we're talking about several hundred thousand types of protein, perhaps a million, each unique and each, as far as we know, vital to the maintenance of a sound and happy you. And again, that's one of just the countless examples I could use to illustrate how wonderfully and awesomely you are made. Now, I recognize, too, that when you get up in the morning, you may not feel as awesome and wonderfully made (laughs) every single day. I recognize that. But the fact that you can get up is also a testimony to how awesomely and wonderfully made you are. Now, it's a testimony to the fact that we live in a fallen and broken world that we experience some of that. But there are so many things that testify to how awesomely and wonderfully made you are. Uh, For those of you, just YouTube... um, I think it's hearing ear and seeing eye. If you, there, there's a video on YouTube. If you just Google those things, it is incredible just the way your ears work and the way your eyes work. Some of you who take pictures, love cameras and things like that, you will be blown away at the things that your eyes can do when they work properly, which I'll get to that in, in, in a little bit. Um, but, but our calibration, our design testifies to a creator. We are awesomely and wonderfully made. We are finely tuned objects that have been created. Again, I know we don't always feel like that, but I promise you, you are. You were made wonderfully and awesomely. But let me point to another thing that you and I can bring up to point people to the one true God and to his son, Jesus Christ. And that's how complex and good creation is. Not just our bodies on an individual level, but creation as a whole is so complex and so good. 
Because what testifies to the reality and goodness of our creator is not just, not just the complexity of our, of our creation, both on an individual level, as we just touched on in, in relation to the human body, and, and on a larger scale as it relates to creation as a whole, but another aspect that testifies to the reality and goodness of our creator is also the fact that when everything in creation works the way it should, the result is very good. Now, I have to clarify that because we live in a fallen and broken world, right? And we see when creation doesn't work, when human beings don't work, but when it does work the way God intended it, it is so very good. Let me give you an example of this. Honey is a good illustration of the complexity and yet the goodness of, of creation that testifies to a creator and his goodness. Did you know that it, to make just 16 ounces of honey, okay, just 16 ounces of honey, over 20,000 bees fly over 100,000 miles to gather enough nectar. You need about four and a half million flowers to glean that much nectar. These bees live all of up to six weeks in the honey-making process, and yet each bee flies around 500 times, or 500 miles in that time span. No wonder they live only six weeks. They're exhausted, right? Next, the bees get the nectar from a flower that brings it to the beehive, and they actually transport the next nectar inside one of their two stomachs, one being their regular stomach, the other one solely used to store nectar. And while sloshing around in their extra stomach, the nectar, nectar mixes with enzymes that transform its chemical uh, composition and pH levels, making it more suitable for long-term storage. When they get to the beehive, they distribute the nectar to another bee that lives at the beehive by regurgitating, it sounds great, doesn't it? Regurgitating it into the bee's, other bee's mouth. This regurg regurgitation process, there's going to be a test, by the way, on all of this afterwards. This regurgitation process, which can be up to 200 times, is repeated until the partially digested nectar is finally deposited into the honeycomb. Once in the honeycomb, bees set to work fanning the honeycomb with their wings in an effort to speed up the process of evaporation. This helps to reduce the water content of the nectar, also increases the sugar content. At the same time, those bees are also killing microbes along the way. All of this is happening, right? We don't even, like, you just, we don't even think about some of these things. And when most of the water has been evaporated from the honeycomb, the bees seal the home, uh, or the comb, with a secretion of liquid from their abdomen, which eventually hardens into beeswax, and that's how every single ounce of honey is made. Now, I've got some out back if you want to eat some. I know that sounds really good in all of your appetite. I'm just kidding. I don't have any. Um, but I'm sure you're very appetized and ready to eat some, uh, some honey. But isn't that, like, that's just one aspect, one aspect of creation. And how many things go into that just to make Honey, which some of you will probably never eat again, but that's okay. Uh, it's good for you, and it tastes good. But I say all this to point out how much goes into the making of a product in creation that is so good. It is amazing, the symphony and orchestration of creation that goes on all the time. And that's just one of the many, many things that are going on in our world each and every day, even as we speak right now. Makes me think of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, when he says that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God has created creation for our enjoyment. Now, 
That's not to say that's God's sole or highest purpose, okay? Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that God's, because this isn't probably a whole other sermon or another sermon series. God, his sole purpose is not to make you happy, okay? That's not his end goal. But God does a lot of things that are for your good. God does, let me rephrase that. God does everything for your good. And your good often ends up in you being happier and healthier and wholer. That's not his sole purpose. It's not his highest purpose. But it is to say that when creation works right, the result is so, so good. And while there's plenty that goes wrong, there is so much that goes right each and every day. And yet so often we take it for granted. I was talking with somebody last week as we were talking about pain and suffering, and one of the things that they talked about is that uh, somebody that, you know, is in their sphere of influence, they talked about how, how, do, how do I balance or how do, how do I deal with um, seeing little babies and innocent little young ones experience extreme pain, whether that be with a, a birth defect or something that happens, and I'm not going to go into all of that um, because it's, it's, I don't have enough time, and I don't know the answer anyways, but the flip side of what we talked about is, too, how, much, how often do we just take birth in and of itself and things going well for granted? The things that have to happen and all of the healthy babies that are in our world. And so often we just take for granted and have little idea how much goes into the orchestration of something so very good. I think about the very first film Walt Disney made. Snow White was the very first film. Artists drew over two million pictures. Each picture flashed up on the frame in front of a camera for a mere one twenty-fourth of a second. And people watched that movie not even having a clue as to how much work went into making it. Or I think about Thanksgiving dinner or potlucks or any kind of meal. Like, but especially I think about Thanksgiving dinner. Especially as a kid, I, I know a little bit more as I get older and I'm you know, part of the process. I'm not still as much as I ought to be. Thankfully, I've got, uh, you know, others that, that, that uh, make the meal much better than I could, um, which is my excuse for not helping out. But, um, but you think about how much goes in and how little time it takes to devour all of the food that, that, that goes into making it, right? And, and I think there's a little bit of that when it comes to uh, creation. And I can't help but wonder sometimes if our creator maybe doesn't feel a little bit that way. Because there is so much good that happens all around us, and yet we often have so little idea as to how much goes into it. I like what one author said. She said, whenever I eat a good meal, preferably one I don't have to cook, I'm with her on that, I'm reminded of the gratuitous nature of the God who made the colors, flavors, and texture of avocado and red pepper and tilapia. If you don't like those things, you can choose something else. Those were the things she liked. He only needed to make the food nutritious and caloric. Everything we eat could simply taste like bread and water, and functionally that would be good enough. There really is no need for the variety and taste sensations that we experience when we eat, but God created them anyways. Or as another author said, perhaps the best proof for the existence of God is banana cream pie, to which I say amen. My dad would also say amen to that. Of course, on the flip side, it's because we see so much goodness when creation does work right that we often experience and feel so much pain 
when it doesn't. John Ortberg writes this, What's convincing to me is not simply the complexity of creation, but also the goodness of creation. If there is no God, then it really doesn't matter if anything exists or not. But there is another way of viewing things. God spoke, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. Even the ugliness we see, cancer and pollution and slums, are painful precisely because creation is so good when it's right. The goodness of creation is a reason to believe. And certainly that can be something we can use to point people to the one true God and to his son, Jesus Christ. But those aren't the only reasons to believe, and so we'll talk about a couple more next week. But let me close with this thought. And it's the last note on your um, handout, and I'm sure it's, I mean, it's kind of more of a bigger, you know, look, bigger view thought. Um, But it is the reality that both faith and doubt are part of our lives. Probably could have said this the first week, and I've probably said it just about every week, but just a reminder, both faith and doubt are part of our lives. They're part of our faith journey. We often think of them as opposites, and certainly in some respects, some respects they are at odds with each other, and yet in other ways they are surprisingly alike. Both are concerned with ultimate issues. Both pop up unasked for at unexpected times, and both, I think, are useful. I like what one guy said. He said, among others, there are two things that all of us long for. The first is truth, and because we long for truth, we doubt. Otherwise, we'd be one of those suckers that are born every minute like the old saying goes. And second, we long for something to hope in. And because we long to hope, we believe. Because if we didn't believe, we'd cave in to despair. But in addition to believing and doubting, there is choosing. And in the end, each of us has to choose which road we will follow. Because while, again, faith and doubt are part of our lives, whether we like it or not, whether we want to acknowledge or, or not, each of us gets to choose. We get to choose which path we will follow. We get to choose which one we're going to lean into. Are we going to lean into our doubts and our uncertainties, or are we going to lean into faith and trust even in the midst of our doubts and uncertainties? Because in the end, the reality is there are plenty of reasons to believe. I think about what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. It's a passage we've looked at in this series so far, but I want to remind it of you again in this context. He says in 19 and 20, verses 19 and 20, that what may be known about God is plain to see because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. My question for you today is, and every day, what will your choice be?